This morning we're picking up with face-to-face with the gospel. Galatians, we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. I think I'm pretty sure I've got the right passage in the back of the bulletin this week, so sorry about that uh, last week. But yeah, Galatians 5, 1 to 15. Our, Our passage today addresses one of the areas of deep tension between the law and the gospel. We ask ourselves the question, how far does grace go? To be a Christian, must I do all the things I'm instructed to do? The law tells us that as Christians, it tells us how God wants us to live, how how we're supposed to behave. And then the gospel tells us that we can never escape his forgiveness. That we can never sin so badly and so horribly and so much that he won't forgive us. There's a tension there. Can you feel it? No, I, I can feel it. I can feel it. So what does the Bible have to say about it? Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, we read the word of the Lord. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. And God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. As a father of, of uh, five children and, and those of us who are parents in the room, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be an element that, that we can relate here. One of, the, one of my least favorite phrases to come out of my children's mouths is, I can do it myself. 
That, that phrase is usually uttered when, like, we're late and, and someone's, like, trying to tie shoes, right? And it's like, can I, can I just help you with that? Like, can, can, I, can I just assist here? No, no, I can do it myself, right? I've got this. Or, or maybe it's, it's going upstairs, you know, when they're, when they're just learning. You know, they, they know how to say I can do it myself, but they don't know how to get up the stairs yet. And so it's that slow, like, you know, one at a time, nice and, and delayed. And it's like, dude, can I just carry you up there? Can, can we just end this, please? I can do it myself. I got it. I got it, Dad. I, I want to do it myself. We don't really like help, do we? We want to be individuals. We want to function, act, live on our own. We don't want to be dependent on other people. I can do it myself. We want to be able to do it, whatever it may be, by ourselves, on our own. To show that we can, to prove that we can, to show who we are, what we're capable of. Sometimes we can and we should. I, I would like my children to be able to tie their own shoelaces by themselves. You know, I don't, I don't want them to have to wear Velcro shoes for the rest of their lives, though... There's a certain style element of Velcro that personally I can't argue with. I'm, I'm kind of a fan, but I would like them to be able to tie their shoes by themselves at some point in time, right? I would like my children to be able to find jobs and someday move out of the house sooner rather than later, but you know, it's all good. I'd, I'd like them to be able to afford an apartment and then, you know, maybe buy a house someday. These are things I would like. For my children. I would like them to be able to accomplish this. But there are things that, you know, they, they, there are some things they just won't be able to do. Right? They will never be able to fly on their own. I mean, maybe get in a plane someday, but, but the whole, like, jumping off of the house and trying to fly, that's just not going to be a possibility. That's not something that's going to work for them. They'll never be able to run faster than 40 miles an hour. Fastest man alive, Usain Bolt clocked in at 28 miles per hour. Quite a bit slower than The Flash, much to Asher's chagrin. You know, my kids will never be able to bench press a city bus. You know, there, there are things that you, they just will not be able to do by themselves. So as we can see, there are reasonable things that we try to do on our own. Get a job, buy a house drive a car, tie our shoes. And then there are unreasonable things that we try to do on our own. Fly, break the sound barrier in our sneakers. I mean, forget about a city bus. No way they're gonna bench press a Honda Civic or like even one of those like little smart car things, right? Where you, yeah, they're tiny. Reasonable versus unreasonable. Reasonable versus unreasonable. Into which one does living by works fall? Into which category does working towards our salvation fall? Into which category does contributing even just a little to God's acceptance of us fall? Reasonable? I mean, that's where we want it to be, right? 
That's where we'd like it to be. There's a part of us that looks at the law and says, yeah, that's, that's what I got to do. That's, that's all I got to do. Okay, yeah, I, I think I can do that. I think I can manage that. Just got to get my act together. You know, I, can, I can make that happen. I can, I can keep the law. I can make God happy. I can be right before him. I mean, I'm not a murderer, right? I've, I've lied a couple times. I'm going to work on that, but, but I, can, I can probably get that in line too. I can stop doing that. I don't, I don't need the blood of Jesus. I can do it. I can do what God wants me to do. Paul in our passage today, specifically verse 14, gives us some simple instructions on how to do it on how to keep the law. He gives us a simple command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let me ask you, how's that going? Right? How's that one going? How is loving everyone around you as you love yourself, going. I'm not doing very well. I am not doing very well at that. In fact, I'm, I'm failing miserably. <laughs> I don't have the ability to love anyone like I love myself. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm selfish. I love me some me. Don't get me wrong. I love my li- wife. I love my kids, I love the people in my life, but I consistently live a perfect, but I consistently live a perfect life of love towards them. I, I don't. I can't. I can't consistently, perfectly love them like I love myself. I'm unable to love my neighbor as I love myself, but how, how's that going for you? We fall short in keeping the law. None of us can do it perfectly, not one. In our verses today, Paul has a grave warning for anyone who tries to live that way. For anyone who desires to live under the law, Paul says in verse 4 that they have severed themselves from Christ. That they have fallen away from grace. Not that God has taken grace from us, but that we have refused it from God. To say that we can participate in our salvation, that we can add something, anything, to Christ's perfect work on the cross, is to say that we don't need Christ at all. That we can do it on our own. It is to reject grace completely. We cannot hold on to grace if we are trying to live by works. Living by works is saying that Christ doesn't have value that there is no need for him. Christ is either all of our value or he is without value. All of our value or without value. He is all of our value. All of it. And in in his message to us in the gospel, He has set us free. Verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
The word Paul uses for set us free in the Greek is in the aorist tense. Greek uses a bunch of different tenses. And this is in the aorist tense. And that means that it is an action in the past that has been completed. It is done. It is finished. His work for us on the cross is completed. His payment for sin is done. It is finished. He has set us free. This is the strongest way that the language has of telling us that Christ has set us free. In the gospel, we have freedom. What does gospel freedom look like? We break it down into two parts. There's there's conscious freedom. I am free from the guilt of my imperfect performance. We don't have to walk around feeling constantly guilty for all the times that we mess up. We don't have to feel guilty for all the times that we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We are free from the guilt of our imperfect performance. And then there's motivational freedom. I am free from the old drive to perform. I no longer need or want to follow the old pursuits as ways to win my righteousness or assure myself of worth. In the gospel, our motivations are different. We're free from the motivation of attempting to please God with our actions, of of trying to earn right standing with God through our works. This also means that our self-worth is not tied to our actions. When our worth is clothed in Christ, it is hidden in Him, as we read in Colossians 3 this morning, we are no longer motivated by the law, by our performance to find our worth, because we are hidden in Christ. He has covered us. As we read earlier in Galatians, as we have put on Christ. The gospel gives us freedom. Freedom from the guilt of not being able to perfectly do all that God desires us to do. And freedom from the motivation that demands perfection and informs our self-worth. So in verses 1 to 12 of our text today, Paul is telling us not to lose our gospel freedom, which we do by trying to earn it. The big trap of legalism. Now that you're a Christian, this is how you must act, right? No more lying, no more swearing, drinking, dancing, and then the list goes on. When the intent of your actions is to be good before God, to obey the law, to curry favor, to earn it, to merit something from God, you are succumbing to legalism. And in legalism, Christ has no value. In verses 13 to 15, he is telling us not to abuse our gospel freedom. In these verses, Paul is writing the other huge error that Christians fall into, not legalism, but license. You know, I, I have a friend who, you know, he's, he's looking to be able to, to do some things that he knows he shouldn't be doing. That he's not allowed to be doing, that, that, wouldn't, that, that, that God would not want him to do. 
And so he comes up to me, really, he calls me up, and he's like, hey, you know, I've been struggling with this, and, but I kind of want to do it. God's going to forgive me, right? There's forgiveness for me if I do this, right? God's, God's a God of infinite love. He's a God of all, you know, he's, he loves me. Yeah, he loves you. So that means that, that he's going to forgive me, right? Well, yeah, I mean, God, God forgives. So that means I can do this, right? Looking for license, using grace, using the gospel as license to sin. God is a God of love. He is. And he's a God of forgiveness. And we can sin until we're blue in the face. And he will still forgive us. There is nowhere that we can run that his love will not find us. There is no sin that we can commit that he is not able to forgive. But just because all of this is true, it does not give license to do it. It does not give license to do it. So to fall into rule keeping, we lose our gospel freedom, but to decide that we're able to behave in any fashion that we choose is to abuse our gospel freedom. What a tension. What a conflict, right? As Christians, there are some tensions that we just have to live with. And this is one of them. Like the Trinity. How accurately can we describe the Trinity? Not only do we not have the language to do it, we don't have the right words, we also don't have the brains to truly grasp the concept of a being that is three separate, individually different beings, and yet the same being at the same time. I mean, we can't do it. I'm looking forward to, like, getting to heaven someday when my body has been, like, redone and my brain is, like, my, my body's gone, but my spirit has, like, been redone. And, and I can grasp some of these concepts that, that God has, has given us that we just can't get right now. There's tensions in the Bible that we have to live with. And, and one of them is Grace. One of them is the grace of the gospel, the tension of legalism and license. As Andrew A. Doss puts it in his, uh, in his commentary on Galatians, he says, The logical tension between sincere warnings against the choice of refusing to follow the instructions of Scripture, to strive to live a godly life on the one hand, and the Lord's effective preservation of the believer on the other hand, must be maintained with integrity. We can't use them to fight the other. They each exist. They each exist. God warns us about living a reckless and ungodly life. The biblical warnings are sincere. They are, there are consequences for not following the instructions of Scripture, and yet the Lord preserves the Christian believer. He does not forsake us. He does not abandon us. He continually forgives us. He loves us. Both of these are true. Consequences and forgiveness, both of these are true. In our minds, they are often at odds. But they are both true. So how does this manifest in the life of the Christian? How do we see these two truths at work? 
Brian Chappell was asked about this dilemma during an interview with Christianity Today. The interviewer asked him the question, so it sounds like every sermon is where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It sounds like all your sermons focus on that gospel declaration. And Chapel responded, yes. And people will say, because people are people, that if you keep assuring others of grace, you're just going to encourage license. Of course, everybody's ready to quote Romans 6.1. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? People always do the math of the mind. Well, if God will forgive me later, why be good now? So we do the math and we say grace just leads to license. And I always respond, no. There is a chemistry of the heart that is stronger than the math of the mind. The chemistry of the heart says if, we, if he loves me so much, I will live for him. That is why we inspire with the gospel. The gospel does not give license. The gospel gives hope and strength. That's why grace is not license. Grace is fuel. I love that illustration. The math of the mind and the chemistry of the heart. And how the chemistry of the heart is stronger than the math of the mind. God at work in our hearts is stronger than our logical conclusions. Though my mind tells me that I can sin as much as I want because God will always forgive me, the Holy Spirit at work in me, in my heart, longs to please God and curbs the math of the mind and points me towards obeying God, towards living in true gospel freedom. And so we strive to keep the law, not to earn our place in glory, but to please God. The law is an expression of God's nature and heart, and following it pleases Him. Again, Christians are freed from the law as a way to win merit with God. The gospel does away with our old, selfishly motivated, unloving law obedience. It motivates us to obey the law out of love. The Greek in our passage today continues to highlight this, the imperatives, the words that tell us what to do, and the indicatives, the words that tell us what we are, are in a very specific order. Herman Ritterboss puts it this way, the imperatives are built on the indicatives, and the order is not reversible. So in English, what we are told to do, the commands, The imperatives are built on who we are, the indicatives. We are not who we are before God because of what we do. We're just not. The Bible is so utterly clear on this. What we do is based off of who we are. And the order is not reversible. What we do is based off of who we are. And who are we? Who are we? We are people saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. People loved by the Lord God on high. People that God desires to know and have a relationship with. People that God desires to unleash into the fields 
of the harvest that many more might come to saving faith in him. People that God asks to follow his instructions, not that we might earn his favor, but out of response of love for him and people that God forgives abundantly, even though we fail him consistently. We are sons of God, heirs with Christ because of the promise that he has given us and the faith that he has instilled in us. As his children, let us not lose our gospel freedom by turning the gospel into the chains of legalism. And let us not abuse our gospel freedom by turning the gospel into a license to sin. Let us instead worship our God out of love. Let us repent of our continuing trespasses against him and revel in the forgiveness that he hands down freely. Let us strive to follow his instruction and be comforted in his forgiveness.